I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Anyone who saw Emma Pooley battling through the rain in the 2012 Olympic road race or watched her smash her way to a hilly stage win or a time trial victory can't fail to have been impressed by her determination and focus. She's been keeping a low profile recently, but for good reason. We catch up with her at her home in Switzerland. And we talk to the author who's trying to unravel the philosophical truth behind turning the pedals. Curators of Craft offer a fantastic, ever-changing selection of craft beers in a range of styles and strengths to suit everyone. Lagers, IPAs, stouts, porters and a range of Belgian, Trappist and Abbey beers to get you in a Flanders state of mind. Choose your own or let the founders Graham and Kate pick a selection for you. Follow curatorsofcraft.co.uk on all the usual social media and use the code RULER15 for 15% off your first order over £40. In Emma Pooley's long career on two wheels, she can list 10 Olympic, World or Commonwealth medals, six World Cup victories and two duathlon world titles, among many other achievements. Her own website lists her activities now as pedalling, running, mountains, inventing sports recipes, seeking adventures and coffee stops. If you follow her on social media, you may have recently seen a frankly shocking photo of her face seemingly covered in cuts and abrasions. As she explained from her home near Zurich, the photo had an important message for cyclists and outdoor athletes. Yeah, I put a picture up on Instagram because I got a bit fed up of people staring at me. It's rude to stare. And I was fine to ask people what, what's wrong. But I, you know, I had um, a three to four week treatment for um, sun damage in the skin caused by UV exposure mostly. And it um, is one of the precursors of basal cell carcinoma. So it doesn't mean you'll necessarily get uh, skin cancers, but the, all the evidence shows that um, it does lead to it. And I had, I didn't realise, I went to the dermatologist for a lump that I thought was bad. And she said, the lump was fine, but I had problems in the rest of my face. And I didn't, I hadn't really realised that, um, you know, I wear sun cream. I wear Factor 50 sun cream, actually. And I thought I was pretty good at sun protection. Turns out I was wrong. <laughs> I probably wasn't wearing enough sun cream. And I, I definitely didn't wear enough sun cream um, when I was a kid. So it looked terrible, which is not the end of the world. It was also really painful. I was surprised by how painful it was. And um yeah, I just looked like I sort of landed headbutted a grater for a few weeks, <laughs> which was a horrible look. And but I had some fun with it. I told people that I'd tripped on a treadmill and landed on my face and things like that. So when they stared, <laughs> but um, yeah, and now it's it's healing up slowly now. And now I now I have back to hundreds of sun cream for my face um, because the areas that have been treated, basically the treatment um, is a topical chemotherapy, and it 
it destroys the, any cells that are multiplying very fast, which is the same as a, a systemic chemotherapy would do. Um, but it's just on your face. It's much, much better, obviously, than having chemo. But um, it is painful and it causes a lot of your face to basically fall off. And then where it has um, eroded, you have new skin that's really sensitive to the sun. So, oh, yeah, I didn't even know factor 100 was a thing, but that's not what I put on my face when I go outside. Well, you are pretty fair skinned and obviously you've done... Yeah, pretty much a lifetime of outdoor endurance sport and, and, and cycling. Presumably that's a big factor in it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why, why I thought it might be interesting to other people who cycle and run is, um, I mean, yeah, I've spent a lot of hours outside cycling. And like I said, I, I always wear sun cream. Well, it's not true. I don't wear sun cream when it's cloudy, for example. And my Australian friends, so I learned about sun protection properly from when I was training in Australia um, I've got family there and I used to spend the summers there training, or the Australian summers there. And of course, you get a lot of sun and that's where I sort of learned to wear proper sun cream. But my Aussie friends, are, they're the ones who taught me because <laughs> they, they grow up with it and um, over the risk because it's, it's much higher risk down there. And um, they wear, you know, I've got one friend, she wears sun cream even if it's, if it's cloudy and raining. She pretty much wears sun cream at night. <laughs> she's fair skin like me and, and she's, much, she's much smarter about it. So I was, I was, I'm, I'm grateful that yeah, Australian friends taught me about it because I don't think I'd have even gone to the dermatologist about the, the lump if it hadn't been for the influence of spending time in Australia where the awareness of skin cancer is much higher. And a lot of us might think, well, you know, especially in the UK, like, oh, it's never sunny. I'm not going to get, you know, but well, we Brits do have a reputation for getting sunburned and it's really not good. And um, for, I know everyone likes looking like they've got a tan because they think it looks healthy and everything. But I can't emphasize enough how horrible that treatment was. And that's not even a patch on getting actual skin cancer and having treatment for that. So yeah, think about it and look up the advice on correct application of sun cream because you have to put on way more than I realized. I thought, yeah, a bit of a sort of squirt everywhere and it'll be fine, but you have to put on tons and reapply every two hours and a bit of a faff, but it's better than getting cancer. <laughs> One of the problems I think is that there's this obsession with tan lines in cycling, isn't it? Obsession with tan lines in pro cycling. Everyone sort of pays lip service to uh, sunscreen, but a lot of people ignore it on a day-to-day basis. Well, I mean, if you spend a lot of time outside, it's inevitable that you will you will get, I mean, depends on your skin type, but most people will develop a bit of a tan and tan is protective. The problem is how you get the tan. And, um, and if you're wearing the right amount of sun cream, then it should be really, really slow to, to get a tan. And um, because you want to, you want your melanocytes to produce melanin without ever burning, without UV damage. It is conceivable that pro cyclists who spend 40 hours outside a week might have got a tan in a healthy way. I'm not criticizing, I don't want to criticize people with tan lines because I mean, it's one of the running jokes in cycling, but going out and getting burnt a few days of the year is not a good way to develop a tan line just to try and look cool. Uh, looking back, you had a long and uh, a very successful cycling career. Um, sort of effectively finally retired after Rio in 2016, but moved on um, to triathlon, duathlon and running. And actually that was your first sport really, wasn't it? Yeah, um, I always run as a kid and I love running. I, I've, I always loved it the most actually. And I, I only actually got into cycling through a running injury when I was a student. And, and I really got into cycling as cross-training. I never in, intended to race uh, my bike. It just sort of lucked out that way. So you could say the running injury was sort of a lucky thing. And yeah, so I, I always ran in the off season anyway. I think it's, it's really healthy. And in 2014, 15, and then again in 2017, I, I did a lot of uh, triathlon, triathlon races, which the long distance stuff. So the uh, longer the better, really. I'm not very quick at swimming. But I, I stopped doing that as my main thing in at the end of 2017. But I still run loads. And I obviously I ride my bike loads and I love it. But um, I wouldn't necessarily 
sometimes I have an event that I train for quite specifically, but mostly I run because to be honest, I just really enjoy it. It makes me happy. It's my best form of therapy. And it's also, it's going to sound really sad, but it turned out to be really clever in COVID times that is my social life is, is most of my friends do sport. I'm not saying it's my only social life, but it is mostly that's, you know, if I meet friends, it's mostly to go for a run or a bike ride. I just know that it is it, such a good, it's just part of my daily routine and I love it. So I, people always ask me what I'm training for running and I'm like, well, I have some events, but I, I run because I love it. <laughs> There was some mention on your, again, on your social media of a 100-kilometre event, running event that you were entering. Quite soon, actually. I've been doing longer and longer running events uh, the last few years. I wanted to get into ultra running, and I, I kept having injury setbacks. So I'd had a few stress fractures in the, a few years ago, um, a quite bad bone density probably from overtraining when I was a cyclist. But um, I love running, like I said, and, and the, the long stuff has always really appealed to me. Like, I've got lots of friends who are into ultra running, and... And I'm on I'm I'm on the Salomon Swiss team, so I, I get amazing kit from Salomon, and I have a lot of buddies who run for Salomon as well. And um, so I've, I've been able to do some of the really cool races in Switzerland that are sort of part of the Salomon circuit, like Sierra Nal, and those are all sort of 30 to 40k. And last year I upped it to to sort of 70 kilometers in training, and I had my longest race. I'm not quite my longest, but I ran the Swiss National Champs this year, which is 50k. And for the last couple of years, I've I've sort of dreamed of running 100 kilometers in one go, which um, doesn't sound like much to a cyclist probably but it is a long run <laughs> it sounds like a lot it sounds like an awful lot to run it is a long run and also I really hate flat runs it's just boring it's as bad as riding my bike flat it also is, it's kind of makes your legs ache because you have the same movement the whole time so I prefer mountain runs so I signed up for UTMR which is the Ultra Tour de Monterosa and they have a, a 170k run but I've signed up for the 100 and it's oh my goodness it's, it's two weeks tomorrow and I'm really really under trained <laughs> but you know better than being injured <laughs> did you have you noticed a sort of difference between um the sports between you know cycling triathlon and um ultra running in particular because a lot of people say that um those other sports are slightly less intimidating slightly more sort of welcoming and collegiate than than cycling can be i have to say that is a bit the impression one gets but i do think cycling is changing for the better and i think a lot of it's to do with the structure of the sport and the way the pro cycling is very separate from amateur racing and from spectators you know if you go to watch a pro bike race there might be a sporty alongside it but probably not and and the, cy- the pros are always on the other side of a barrier or there's like dashing past at 60k an hour or and you, you know people go and watch the Tour de France and they see them for a, a second as they flash by and there isn't much interaction um, unless you pay a ton of money and go on some kind of corporate thing to ride with a pro or something which is weird to me because I got into cycling not through a talent program I got into cycling through riding a load and getting lucky at some races and joining a team and I always trained with my friends who are not pros mostly I didn't understand the separation like why would you want to train your own train on your own when it's so much more fun to train with other people and I of course you know for, for the pro guys it's a bit more tricky maybe to find people quick enough but anyway my point being that um whereas it was in running and in triathlon uh, is it, a race and everyone's in the race and long distance triathlon I'm not going to name the brand name but you know the ones I mean the long distance triathlons Everyone does the same course on the same day, normally. You can compare your time. You can go and say hi to Chrissy Wellington in transition and she's in, she'll be incredibly friendly and she'll say hi and you can compare your run times. And trail running is the same in that, um, in fact, it's even more so in that uh, everyone's just trying to survive, really. <laughs> like even the best trail runners, it's 170K, they're racing. But it's a big question. It's, it's more of a question of whether your body can cope. And I think the friendliness is partly because everyone's in the same boat kind of thing. But I do think cycling is getting 
I would say better in that there are more and more sportives and more and more friendly events that are I don't mean they're friendly in that they're about just taking it easy because often they're very challenging but the point is not to try and win by beating someone else which is what cycling is about like at a pro level like you only win if everyone else doesn't win it's about the winning in a, in a sportive or in one of those challenge events is taking on something that is tough for you and challenging yourself and getting through it and and that's incredibly satisfying for, for everyone of any level and, and and anyone can find their challenge and I think that's what's really really cool about those this you know there's, there's cycling events spring up all over the UK and in fact all over Europe and catering like a lot of gravel stuff but also sort of sportives and and longer events and and self-supported and you know with strict no littering policies and it's it's totally different to pro cycling and I love it because I think that's what sport really helps people with is when you find a challenge that you don't think you can do you train for it you get through it like it's so empowering you feel so good afterwards and it's wonderful and that can be in running that can be anything from park run to 100 miles and I think that's what's wonderful about all sport generally but I think particularly the sports of um of, of running and cycling are, are really going in the right direction with, with mass participation events like that. Well, looking at the current women's pro cycling scene, what are your thoughts about how it's changed since you started sort of in the mid-2000s? It's improving in leaps and bounds in, in the structure of the sport, the visibility of the sport. I don't know about the quality of the racing. That's really hard for me to judge because it's very different when you're in a race to when you're watching a race. What I do know is that there's like the, the fan base is growing, the level of professionalism of the teams is growing, more and more races are well documented in terms of media coverage. It's a slow process because uh, cycling is such a logistically challenging sport to produce decent media coverage of. You know, it's a football match or a tennis match. You can uh, you can stick a few, ha- few cameras around and and then you can create a highlights package. But a bike race, you, you you need motorbikes, you need drones, you need helicopters. Ideally, you need photographers all over the place. It's really expensive to to document a bike race in a way that's interesting, and that's the challenge women's cycling basically has had is that. The racing when I raced was really really exciting and so few people saw it and it made me really sad back then that the only races people ever saw me do were the Olympics and the World Championships and 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 then fans don't have the background knowledge of of the athletes and the, the racing and the strategy to really follow the sport and that's really changing that's massively improving there's some people doing awesome work in women's cycling there are some media outlets and, and journalists who, who do an incredible job the Cyclist Alliance, which I'm sure you've heard of, um, it's basically a, a trade union for female cyclists, but they, they're really pushing for better better media coverage, but also better treatment of women cyclists um, by their teams and by, you know, and better media coverage from races. And that's really important that someone there is the voice for female cycling. And I think it's largely due to their pressure that things are improving. You're an ambassador for uh, a number of companies, including... Commute, the uh, route planning app. Um, d- does that help you with your various cycling adventures? It's brilliant. I I started using it a few years ago because a friend got me into yeah using Commute to plan things. Previously, then I sort of no, I set up either on routes that I knew already or following a friend who knew a route. And it, um, I think it's accompanied me in the way I've changed my cycling really well because I still love riding my bike, but I don't particularly love going out and trying to smash out QOMs on climbs on road climbs anymore. And my, I love riding my road bike, but sometimes it feels a bit like training in the old days. And now I, I, I really like going out either on a mountain bike or a gravel bike and sort of having an adventure. I mean, hopefully it's not life-threatening or anything, but it doesn't have to be too extreme. But going to new places and exploring new variations on, on routes that I, you know, I never go very far from home because I've got great hills and mountains near me. But it, it just gives you this way of, of exploring and finding routes that other people have done and and obviously checking the distance and elevation and things. And it's, it's just a, it's an absolutely brilliant tool. I love it. To the extent that I have to pressure friends who don't have commute to 
get an account so I can share the route with them because otherwise, you know, they're like, oh, where are we going? Well, get a commute account and I'll show you where we're going. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't always have much time to ride my bike. That's why running is much more time efficient. But when I do have time at weekends or in the holidays, I I like to do longer rides and, and camp out and it's really fun. I've done a few sort of bikepacking races and gravel races and, and it's really fun to set off without any kind of pressure of performance. But um, it is, I do find it makes me feel quite fit at the end of a three to five day bike ride. <laughs> uh, you, you rode with um, Lizzie Dynion or Lizzie Armitstead at London in the rain in 2012 and in Rio in 2016. Um, what were your thoughts when you saw um, the women's Olympic road race in Tokyo this year? Um, I confess I didn't watch the didn't watch any of the Olympics. <laughs> I've I've just had exams and I uh, so I've been strictly revising and the only time I was allowed out of, away from my desk was uh, to go for my own run <laughs> or bike ride. Uh, so I didn't watch any of it, but I, I did hear about the results and I my first thought was awesome result for the winner, <laughs> bloody brilliant because that's the kind of thing that that's the kind of thing that makes the sport exciting and, and surprising and also it was the kind of tactic I employed when I was racing. <laughs> Well, so too, too many things like one the olympics is never normal race tactics because the teams are smaller the teams are different to normal like you can't compare a road race where people have maximum of four riders in a team to when there were six or eight riders you just can't ride the same way the only thing i heard was that there was some sort of communication and and that the riders didn't have full knowledge i don't all i know is that when you're racing at a race that's very important to you you keep your eyes open like it's part of your job as a racing cyclist you don't rely on radios because they're they fail um even if they're allowed in a race they they're not entirely reliable like you should keep your wits around you and you need to count the numbers that go off the front if a break goes off the front you count them out and you count them back in again when you catch them a racing cyclist has to take responsibility if they want to win a race to, to keep their wits about them and their eyes open and race with your head as well because it's not just about what you know you have to you have to be quite smart to to race well without a radio um so i think that people who complained about not knowing that she was off the front are thinking well <laughs> why didn't you know <laughs> um yeah especially in a road like it's not like there's hundreds of people in the bunch and you you can't see things go like you see a break go because there's only 60 riders or so in the Olympic road race uh, you mentioned your exams there I mean you, you originally studied uh engineering at Cambridge and you've been studying for a PhD in geotechnical engineering oh uh, yeah no I finished my PhD in 2013 so um yeah that was a relief because it took me a long time because I, I was only really working part-time alongside racing so since I stopped racing in um at the end of 2017, I've tried various jobs. That sounds really, sounds really lame, but uh, I worked at GCN for a year and then I got an engineering job locally to where I live um, near Zurich. So my, so my PhD was in Zurich and it took me so long to do it that I, by the time it, I finally got through it, I was, didn't really, you know, this is home. So, um, and I, I got citizenship last year. So, I, you know, I kind of, this is, this is home now. I did a local engineering job and then I got recruited by Swiss Cycling to run a, a programme recruiting female cyclists. And then, um, the exams because uh, COVID gave me a lot to think about and I decided to go back to university again to try and study medicine. Uh, this is first year medical exams with all the kids who are half my age. Ideally, what is your sort of medium to long-term plan then? Uh, well, I would have passed the exams. I don't know for a few weeks. And then uh, I've got another four years of study before I come out as a junior, well, a trainee dentist or doctor. It's actually something I wanted to do for, for eight years, but I thought, in 2012 when it first thought about it was when I was finishing for my PhD and I thought I really wish I'd studied medicine like <laughs> I've been a, it's taken me so long this PhD I might as well have done a medical degree and um but I thought no no don't be ridiculous you're too old like you're nearly 30 no way and um 
and it took me eight years to get the courage up to, to apply. Sorry, that's my cuckoo clock. Um, and so I finally applied in, yeah, last year and got a got a place at the University of Zurich. So I think what's making it rather hard is that it's in German and I speak German, but I didn't go to school in German. So my chemistry and physics and biology was even longer ago. I stopped biology at 16. So it's really hard, I'll be honest. It's been really hard. And um, yeah, I failed the exams in June and I've probably failed them again just now. So <laughs> maybe I have to find a different job, but that was my dream. So I'm going to try at least. Well, I hope it goes well. I, I love the fact that you're now so Swiss, you have a cuckoo clock. <laughs> it's actually not a Swiss cuckoo clock. And cuckoo clocks are actually invented in the Schwarzwald in Germany. So I'm um, sorry, but they, they do love selling them here because the tourists love them. <laughs> Emma, well, look, good luck with um, what you do decide to do uh, or what you do end up doing. And best wishes for your own health as well. And thank you for, uh, thank you for the reminder about sunscreen and, uh, and thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thanks. Why hello there, podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as six pounds per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinnewi, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer. Lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists, from the coffee and cake rider to the crit racer. Lacquer has transformed traditional insurance. No more fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your maximum monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. Plus, 80% of your money goes straight back into the Lacquer Collective, fixing, replacing and helping. And the other 20% keeps their wheels spinning. It's as simple as that. Claims are handled by their team of cycling experts and usually agreed within a day. With no depreciation or excess, they've ditched annual contracts with Lacquer. If you want to leave, you can, any time. If you head over to www.lacquer.co, new customers can get their first 30 days free by signing up today with the discount code RULER. Hello, Ian. Hello, Ian. You want to talk about beer, I imagine? I do indeed. I have just poured out a sensational bottle of Saison de la Casa from Cambridge's Pastor Brewery into the perfect beer glass sent to me by Curators of Craft. Good for you. I knew you'd be happy for me. Want to hear more? Go on then. Curators of Craft are a Yorkshire-based company specialising in small batch craft beers and Trappist ales. You can either make your own selection from the range of hand-picked quality independent beers or leave Kate and Graham's impeccable taste buds to do the pecking with their curated boxes. They're massive cycling fans who also love brilliant beer. Yeah, I am coming round to the idea, actually. Excellent news. 
Even better, there's a 15% off code for Ruler listeners. Go to curatorsofcraft.co.uk and use the code RULER15 for your first order over £40 and sign up to their newsletter for all the latest releases and offers, including an upcoming monthly subscription, which should be second on your list after a Ruler subscription, of course. Bikes and beer, it's the perfect match, eh? I'll drink to that. Cheers, Ian. When was the last time you really thought about cycling? Not just thinking about whether you really need that new group set or how you're going to improve your times on Strava, but about the deep underlying philosophy of what we do. Well, James Hibbert has. He's written a book which combines a history of philosophical thought and how it relates to riding your bike. The obvious question is why? I combine them basically based on my background. And my background was as a US track team racer and then in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, reasonably handy, but certainly not standout US domestic pro. And sort of as my talent threshold reached its ceiling, I'd always been interested in philosophy, studied it as an undergraduate, and then went on to study it in graduate school. And increasingly for me, the sort of question became one of one of meaning and purpose and why everyone, why one in general would bother to spend so much of their life to pursue uh, a career as an athlete or a cyclist and really what people were deriving from the sport and what the sport could and should mean. So I became really very interested in that question. And there's sort of a, a seminal list of other books that I was very, very influenced by things like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance by Robert Persing. Um, thing like another book, probably Tim Kirby's the rider. So these sort of books that are topically about cycling, but fundamentally about something far more and show the sort of motivations and meaning that you can derive from just trying to do something exceptionally well. Now, essentially, your book kind of traces the history of sort of mainly Western thought and philosophy and kind of links throughout to cycling. Were there any parts that you thought, actually, this really doesn't fit? There, there isn't any relation between this particular strain of philosophy and cycling? I had the luck and the luxury of being able to cherry pick. So if you were looking at the philosophers that I engage from a strictly, am I telling a complete story of Western philosophy? No, there's some clear omissions. So for me, there, there was a very specific trajectory following from Plato through Descartes, Hume, and then very, very much reliant. There's sort of, if there was a single, a single thread, it would be essentially Nietzsche. So Nietzsche is very engaged in physicality. He talks almost endlessly about the mountains and, and I don't know how much listeners might know about Nietzsche's biography, but he speaks endlessly after, after sort of retiring his professorship, speaks endlessly about the physical difficulties of climbing the Alps as he's a sort of itinerant writer professor uh, moving about Switzerland. For Nietzsche, the whole idea of physical overcoming and intellectual overcoming are inexorably bound up. And, and that makes him a figure that's, that's very, very amenable to being tied into the hardships, self-imposed hardships um, of cycling. And I think what's interesting about cycling is that all of the hardships that we undertake are so elective. It's not a matter of we have to do this in order to survive. 
it's this sort of, if you look at it from, from a Maslow hierarchical need, right? The pyramid that everyone references, it's a matter not of, of basic survival, of physical survival, but once all of those needs are met, then what do we do? And that's this sort of role of, of cycling that I try and unpack in relation to all of these figures in Western thought. I know a lot of bike racers and, and not many of them are philosophically minded, but it's interesting what you were saying there because a lot of them do quote Nietzsche or um, uh, at least the quotes that are attributed to Nietzsche, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, and that does, I guess, make Nietzsche the, uh, the cyclist philosopher. I think that Nietzsche is an interesting figure because he does have so much popular purchase and, and has had such a, a great cultural reach, he's also easy to appropriate and misappropriate. So even that, that, that famed, what doesn't kill you, make you stronger, makes one stronger, you sort of, uh, I sort of always chuckle at, because if you know anything about Nietzsche's biography, this did not come to pass for him personally. Winning at all costs for Nietzsche is not Nietzsche. You're sort of misconstruing Nietzsche in that, in that vein. So I think that, that he's a, a particularly interesting fulcrum. And there's another beautiful book by, by an American writer named John Cagg called Hiking with Nietzsche that, that deals with some of these same issues and attempts something that I hopefully at least sought to, to, to grapple with, which is what is the actual emotional impact of all of these ideas? I think that it's also very easy to write this sort of intellectualized, rarefied treatise that's not interesting, that doesn't say that these are ideas that actually matter to people and how they experience the world and what their emotional lives are. And, and that was a, a pitfall that I very much sought to avoid. Well, you weave into the narrative the story of a ride that you undertake with some friends or, who are also kind of ex-racers or ex-pros uh, along the west coast of the States. What was the thinking there? Thinking was to just make it very immediate. I didn't want to just sort of juxtapose, here's a history of philosophy and here's some abstract thoughts about how they may apply to cycling writ large. I wasn't particularly interested in doing that. I was interested in bringing back ultimately the sort of immediacy of the sport, the visceral immediacy of what it is to ride a bike and to notice that one's alive. And I think that fundamentally, it's very easy to go down a philosophical, overly intellectualized path that is abstract and divorced from the world. And this sort of being divorced from the world and living in one's head is I think in many ways a very modern malady and a very modern condition. And I think breeds a great deal of unhappiness. Tying in a present tense narrative is able to show the emotional results of that task to show that, that actually being physically embodied and alive matters. So it'd be very easy to sort of discount it and say, in a sort of pejorative way, you could almost go through any sport or any activity, say, well, what's cycling? It's a bunch of men in tight clothes with shaved legs, riding expensive toys. This is, this is superfluous. What is soccer? It's a bunch of, of men chasing a ball. This is, this is absolutely inane. Avoiding those sort of dismissive, overly intellectualized takes on sports 
is another sort of key thing to notice that you're fully alive and embodied and not just a sort of brain in a vat, as a lot of Western philosophers had sort of positioned human beings for for a number of millennia even. And that presumably ties in to the, to the current very popular um, way of thinking that um, physical exercise is one of the best ways of, of coping with depression or uh, uh, improving your mental health. Um, and you talk in the book yourself about your own depression. I think it's coming up a great deal more in the last even just 12 months I don't think it's particularly mentally healthy to pursue elite level sports. And I think a lot of people do so for, for first of all, at, at an age where they're not able to reflect on what their actual motivations are for pursuing elite sport at such a high level. And second of all, it's very easy to be a reasonably successful athlete, retire when you're in your early thirties and sort of wake up to the reality that the rest of the world has progressed and cares very little about the microcosm of sport. So I think you sort of can, can look down the punch list of just cyclists with uh, a great deal of mental health problems. Once you sort of wake up from the bubble of cycling, it's, it's very, very difficult. So I think there's that element. And then there's also is the element of returning to something you know, in my case, cycling, but for very, very different reasons. Than, than I pursued it when I was younger. I feel very divorced from the person who was so invested in succeeding on the bike. I feel sympathetic for that person, but I don't, I don't feel nearly the same sort of competitive obsession that I felt when I was 12 or 13 or 14 and doing intervals at the local velodrome rather than seeing friends or doing anything else. That level of obsession has certainly dissipated as I've, as I've grown older. And that search for perfection, I guess, is also sort of a common thread in philosophy as well, isn't it? The obsession with uh, an ideal. Yeah, the whole, going back to even Platonism, the whole idea that rather than, and this is sort of a philosophy 101 cliche, but rather than this particular banged up table that's going to rot and has a little bit of a crooked leg, there exists this sort of perfect ideal that is in fact unseen, can never be created, and is far more, therefore far more real and far more perfect than any particular sloppy example that you can ever encounter in the sensory world. So this sounds very abstract, but I think that increasingly the way people relate to social media, the way people have been trained to think um, in an internet age, this actually is, is a concept that is becoming far more prevalent, not less. You have a sort of digitized abstract world that's very, very clean and perfect. And then you have a sloppy, tangible, contingent one that's just, uh, that, that becomes less interesting and less perfect as a result of this unseen ideal. So that was another thing that I wanted to, to push back against, to push back against this entire sort of cultural concept of things being abstract and perfect and engage a sloppy contingent reality that I think is really key. So what would you say to someone who says, okay, a book about cycling and the history of philosophy, 
why would I read that? I think you'd want to read that because you want to better, one would want to better understand the entire sort of emotional and intellectual basis for why one is interested in cycling. I think it's at a certain point, I don't think there, it requires any horrible deep thinking to be like, okay, it's five years in to my interest in the sport. I'm a category three club rider. Why am I flipping open the pages of this magazine to learn about a new deep dish wheel set? So I think that, that even a sort of like minimum amount of self-reflection to sort of say, okay, what's really compelling my interest in this thing? Is there something deeper? Is there something more meaningful? Is there something that, that really matters to me as a person about my interest in this thing and the money and time investment that I'm putting into this sport? So I think that, that that's the real fallout and the real point of engagement that I hope to, to bring readers to. Okay, now I have a little bit more self-understanding as to why this thing actually does matter and isn't a sort of silly superfluous expenditure of time and money and effort on my part. Okay, James Hibbard, The Art of Cycling is published by Quirkus Books. It is, it's out now. James, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me in. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 